morning we have the privilege of hearing from Jason Martin. Jason came to us in September as our new family care and education pastor, and uh, he and his wife Jill and their boys Owen and Noah have quickly become uh, an integral part of our church family. They just fit right in, and we are so, so glad they're here and really look forward to what Jason has to share with this morning. So, Jason. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Scary place to be for the new guy, I'll tell you that right now. Well, I was watching a documentary, a documentary called The Devil Came on Horseback. I don't know if some of you have seen that or not. It's on Netflix, and it's good. You probably ought to. In this documentary, there's a former Marine captain, Brian Steidel, who went to monitor a ceasefire after 20 years of civil war in Sudan. And uh, the uh, civil war was between Muslims in the north who ruled the country and animists and Christians in the south. And so he went out there in 2004, and one of the things, and he was out there for about six months. And one of the things that he had found was that there was a great genocide going on. Uh, This made a big impact on him. He took lots and lots of photos, and they were atrocities uh, too dramatic to even repeat in this room, but uh, men, women, children, uh, whole villages decimated, burned. Over a million people uh, that were run out of that particular area in Sudan known as Darfur. And he decided that he wanted to make a difference. And so he was going to come back here to the U.S. and make it known, make people aware of the things that were going on. And his great assumption was that Surely, we will rise up and we will take action. And so, uh, he would come and, and do large fundraisers uh, for support for those, dis, those people that were put outside of homes and were dying of hunger and all kinds of problems. And they did large rallies in Washington. And he came to a point where he was really excited thinking, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. People are becoming aware, and help is on its way. Soon after that, he lost hope completely. And one of the things he saw, and it's reflective of our culture at large, and in as much as it's a reflective of our culture at large, it pervades our lives as well. And so uh, there's significance to this particular phenomenon. And, and that's that uh, he would do large fundraisers, and people would come, and they would cry, And they would applaud for the people of Darfur. And they would applaud his efforts. And they would have an outflow of great emotion only to leave and do nothing at all. And and it it disturbed him deeply, deeply. And so he would do more and more. And what he found was people merely wanted to dress up, come and show their support by eating a five-course meal, by crying and applauding. And yet when it came to, make, to take action, there was no one. It's common in our culture. We have a conception of compassion that ex- is expressed not so much in action. It's expressed in an outflowing of emotion and oftentimes consumption, which is a peculiar thing. I'll give you some examples. We might buy a five-course meal at a benefit. We may wear certain clothes in support of this or that cause. 
We might drink a particular coffee for the coffee farmers. We might grow facial hair at a particular time in the year for awareness. We might go run a race in support of this or that. We might tie ribbons on our cars. All for the sake of our show of compassion. And we'll call it for awareness. I'm pretty sure most of those people could care less if you're aware of them or not. Just to be honest. I think if we had such staggering needs as our world does, I think whether or not the rest of the world was aware would fall very short on our radar of caring. (laughs) Because we would have a hard time seeing past our needs. Needs that demand some action. But oftentimes action costs us something. It costs comfort. It costs convenience. It costs letting the go of, of some dream or aspiration we have for ourselves and for our families. It costs us something at the end of the day. Most of us aren't really willing. The sermon today is on the Good Samaritan, a very popular sermon. Uh, a sermon that's been preached maybe more times than just about any other throughout church history. And it's a sermon that's about God's concern for all people and our response to that concern being at the very core of what it means to have eternal life. It's about what it means to live as or to be a Christian. If you would pray with me before we begin. Father, thank you so much for the love and the grace that you have shown us. Thank you for this season of Advent as we eagerly anticipate Your coming, Lord, as we reflect on your first coming and what it's meant and the great event that that was in the course of history, Lord. But even as we look forward, as Todd had said, to your second coming, when indeed every tear will be wiped, when the horrible things we face in a fallen world will once for all be done away with, Lord, may we eagerly await your coming. Lord, I pray that you would bless us this morning. As we look into your word, show us great and wonderful things. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to receive your word in repentance and in rejoicing. And Lord, for there's much to rejoice over. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a couple perspectives before we look at uh, Luke's parable. For one, and these are really important to understanding this particular parable. A parable is a drama. All right, And so you guys are familiar with the parable as a story, and essentially it's a drama, and it's a drama that's cast within a larger drama. So there's something going on in real life, and, and in that context, context, so there's this parable, this other drama, and the two actually relate to one another. And the key to understanding the parable is the larger drama that's going on. So keep that in mind. Another one that, particularly within uh, Luke's parables, that there's an element of shock or surprise. In every one of these parables, there's some element of shock or surprise. And living here in the 21st century, sometimes we're a miss for it. Uh, because typically it's a shock or surprise that a, a first century Jew would have caught on to. And so we got a little bit of work to do in just understanding that context a little bit. So please be patient as we do try to understand it. Uh, but be looking for this shock or surprise because therein, Jesus is seeking to change our values and our beliefs about who he is and about the world. So this... 
this point of shock or surprise is going to be a key point. And also that typically a, a parable is, creates a cluster of related truths. And so there'll be several truths to be gained from the parable. Uh, and at its very nature, it's designed to change lives. That's why it's put in story format. Uh, we're to put in ourselves in that story as much as we can, and, and, and it's to have great impact in our lives. And so with that in mind, let's look at the story in Luke chapter 10, starting on verse 25. And I'm going to kind of take it apart as we go. So verse 25 refers to an expert in the law who stood up to test Jesus. And so Luke is opening up our two first characters. The first is a lawyer. Uh, a lawyer is a part of a leadership group called Pharisees, okay? And, and I want to give you an idea of this guy. This was a religious movement, kind of like a Bible church movement, to be honest with you. It was within Judaism, and they were really conservative, to be honest with you. They, they were the conservatives of their day. Uh, in fact, if you heard some of their values, you would, you would really identify, and in a right way, you would. One of them is that all the Old Testament, particularly the Torah, was revealed authoritative will of God. That's how they saw the Bible the revealed authoritative will of God. Another way was that Scripture was to be interpreted within a fairly strict system of theology, doctrine. That's how they interpreted Scripture, according to doctrine. Another one is that uh, teaching of Scripture ought to change or influence every dimension of our lives. So it had say into everything we did. And so inasmuch as this is the way the Pharisee movement was, they really were the conservatives of their day. They were to conserve that which was and make it continue to be relevant in the present. And so this lawyer would have been trained in understanding the revealed text and how to apply it to everyday life. Does that sound familiar? He was a pastor. So, so and, and I need you guys to put yourselves into this story, okay? So we're talking about Todd here, our pastor who we love and adore. I mean, I mean, really, I want you to. And it's, it has nothing, it's saying nothing about Todd. You just want to put yourself in this story, okay? So here you have your preacher, who is conservative and trying to uphold the truth of the Word. That's the context, really. Um, and so then you have this second character, this rabbi named Jesus. And I think sometimes we even fail to understand the context for Jesus. Jesus is one that since Luke 4... In his public ministry, his reputation has always preceded him. You know, gossip in the first century was like the internet of the 21st century. So anywhere Jesus went, they had heard about this guy. And he kind of had a little bit of a reputation as well, particularly with the Pharisees in that movement. Uh, for one, he tended to interpret Torah in different ways than what the Pharisees did. You might remember from uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was continually saying, You have heard it said... But I say to you, and so he had different ways of interpreting Scripture that they weren't used to. Um, typically, the way he interpreted it, too, challenged their comforts and convenience that their places of honor had afforded them. And so you can imagine he wasn't real popular. Um, and, and they would have been preparing themselves if they heard he was coming. Um, he also told people they could live in ways that maybe the rabbis didn't agree with. And that really irritated him too. Some of the other things he would do is uh, he gained a lot of popularity, particularly with the poor, because he was 
pointing out a way that many of them craved, but many of the people who were wealthy and had places of honor didn't. And the last thing was that he was doing miracles, and they were significant miracles. They weren't miracles that the Pharisees were claiming to have done or that they may have seen anybody ever do. And so you can imagine when this one Jesus came in to talk to their pastor, there was an awful lot at stake, and you need to feel that tension a little bit. That's really important to this story. Um, and so essentially I want to I paint it for you, and you know I was going to get Carrie to come be my liberal, but I'm not going to today. But what I wanted to do is set up Todd here as our pastor and Carrie is a liberal. Because really what it is is a a classic square off between a conservative and a liberal. And when I say liberal, don't get the wrong idea. A liberal is someone who is promoting new ways of acting and believing and valuing and Jesus certainly was that. Okay, so, so get what I say when I say that. But it was a classic square off, and there was every bit as much tension as you might see today in that. And so you'll notice that the lawyer greets Jesus as teacher. And uh, it seems to be that he's showing him honor and respect, and yet Luke reveals the lawyer's heart. He wants to test him, it says in in the Scriptures. He wants to see if what he's heard about him lines up with where they're at, right? And so the lawyer has a lot lot at stake, um, Because in every conversation like this, and this would have been a very public, formal conversation, it would have been right here in our congregation, right here in front, where everybody was able to see and hear. So get that this is the context of this conversation. And this pastor would either gain honor in this conversation, or he would lose honor in this conversation. That's what's at stake for him. Everything, really. And so, at the end of verse 25, he asks a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's what the lawyer asks. And so there's a dialogue that begins, and this is how the dialogue is supposed to go. The pastor who has home court advantage, the Pharisee, the lawyer, would ask a very general question. And the one who's there visiting is to give a very general answer. And then the pastor would give a a more specific question. This one would give a more specific answer, and they would go like this until they got to a detail. So understand that this is the construct. You, it would be like me getting up to preach after the first song. You know, there's a protocol that we have, right? It's in the program, dude. Look at it. It says your name by it, all right? So take a clue and come up when you're supposed to come up. Well, understand they have a protocol. And this is the way this dialogue's supposed to go. This is the protocol, all right? And as you can imagine from this one that's notorious, this Jesus, he might not fall into the pattern that they want. And so, but remember that this is the protocol because it's going to play out here in this conversation. And so the question, it's a general question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And they're expecting Jesus to give a very general answer. And so you'll notice starting in verse 26, Jesus immediately deviates from the pattern. He doesn't give a general answer to the question, which would have been a very basic question. Instead, he throws the question back at him. He says, how's it written in the law? How do you read it? So you guys are like, okay, you're coming up after the first song. All right. And, and, and so the lawyer, it's his sweet spot. He's, he's not worried about that. And uh, he's going to fall into Jesus' conversational pattern. He's going to say, verse 27, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
a very common answer. It's coming from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. It's summing all the law up, right? The first half, how to relate to God. The second half, how to relate to all men. And so he gives a good answer. Back to our pattern. So Jesus has reversed it. He's asked the general question, right? And so the lawyer has said, okay, fine. He gives a general answer. So it's back to Jesus again, right? So you know what he's supposed to do. A little more specific question, Jesus. You're up. You know, you guys are like, did someone get him a bulletin? Good. All right. Here he goes. We're fixing to get it. Verse 28. Waiting for that next question. You've answered correctly. It's a statement of honor to the lawyer. And then he adds, do this and you'll live. So, so you as the audience are kind of like, okay, uh, what, what's he doing here? And basically what he's done is this. He's put a lawyer in a very peculiar situation. What he said is this. All you have to do to obtain eternal life is just what you said. So if you will give God your absolute undivided loyalty and allegiance for the entirety of your life in all of your being and love all those you come upon as yourself, giving yourself continually to the good of others, do that and you'll have it. You might remember a similar conversation with the rich young ruler in which Jesus laid out this, uh, what they would need to inherit eternal life. And the disciples came back to him and said, who then can be saved? Well, this is the same situation that he's put this lawyer into. And so he's in trouble. He's getting sweaty. He's getting wet pits. And he's thinking, oh no, it's fixing to be bad for me. And, and, and with all seriousness, it, it would have been a real difficult situation because here's the thing. If he says, I've done that, everybody would know just as I told you that. What would you know? Well, at least we know he's a liar. Right? And if he said he hadn't, you know what else he would also be admitting? He didn't have eternal life. So he's in a predicament. A very tense situation. And what he needs is to validate himself. Right? Remember this conversation is working down to a detail? Now he needs a detail and he needs it bad. He needs something that he could say, I've done this, therefore I'm righteous, therefore I have eternal life. Right? We've all done it, I assure you. Something that we can use to validate ourselves that we're doing pretty good. And so he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Now, this is a common question too. Who is my neighbor? Matter of fact, the rabbis have discussed this for well over 400 years, and they decided who the neighbor is. If you're a Jew, your neighbor is a Jew. That's who you're obligated to love. So you would look out as a Jew, and you would look out upon all the people, and those that were Jews, you would have an obligation to love. You would choose, decide which ones are Jews, which ones are most like me, that one I'm obligated to love. And so uh, the critical question really is, who am I bound to love according to the law in order to meet the requirements set down for eternal life? That's the question. It's a loaded question. Uh, and so what they want is Jesus to go, the Jew, and everybody, and all you guys, you know, they're waiting for Todd to say Jew, so all y'all can go, oh, good, because I'll tell you, his honor matters to you too. He's your pastor. And so the people are waiting. Come on, Jesus. Easy question they've lobbed over to you. You know who the neighbor is. It's the Jew. Say it. Say it. 
And so they're waiting for this simple answer. In verse 30, here's the answer Jesus gives. So there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And y'all go, oh, can't we get an answer? But I'll tell you this, the people of the first century, they weren't real philosophic, but they loved stories, concrete stories that really brought out truths in life. So while you're irritated as you sit here and Jesus totally disrupts this dialogue, you're also intrigued. And your ears might perk up just a little bit and go, all right, he's going to tell a story. Okay? So there's your context. Who's my neighbor? How might I have eternal life? And this one Jesus who's disrupting everything. And so, it says starting in verse 30, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. And look at your text. Who was going down? A man. We don't know if he's Jewish. We don't know if he's Gentile. And so the question really is, is he even a neighbor? Don't know, and that's, that's part of the point. It's just some man. Let's look at some other descriptions he gives of him. First of all, they're going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that's literally down. Jerusalem's up on a mountain, and they're making their way down. This is very desolate. It's over a day's journey. Okay, so get the idea. It's known for robbers. So when you heard a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell in the hands of robbers, you were like, yep, I knew it. It happens all the time. That is a dangerous road. You know, you should really travel in groups. And this actually, that concept comes up in Scripture a lot. You'll be surprised, actually, uh, to find that it does. Um, particularly when Jesus refers to his followers as uh, little ones, um, these ones that don't have to fear going out into these desolate places because the God of the universe is behind them. Uh, so there's some cool places where that actually comes out in the Scripture. But here they knew it. They're like, yep, I knew it. That road right there, it's a bad one. Um, and, and notice how they find him. He's been beaten and he's been stripped. Now, don't think stripped, no clothes. Stripped in an undergarment. See, if a robber came, they would have taken his outer cloak. It would have been of, of nicer material. It probably would have been embroidered. Uh, matter of fact, it also would have been how I could have identified a Jew by the way he dressed. They dressed distinctively. All right? So here Jesus has set up this guy who we don't know who it is, some man, and he doesn't have a cloak on. He's just sitting there in his undergarment robe. All right? So I can't tell anything by the way he's dressed. And so let's see how they describe him. They went away leaving him half dead. Now I know some of you are thinking the princess bride, right? Uh, he's, just, he's merely half dead, you know? Well, actually, the rabbis had five levels of death. And half dead would have been unconscious, unable to speak, and probably about to die. That's what half dead means, all right? So I'll tell you, if, if we were trying to identify where someone was from, who they were, I just want you to get a picture of this. You know, I'll give you an example. I've done a little bit of traveling. and You know, when I'm in New York, I might be at some stand outside, and here's someone order a hot dog or a coffee you know hey you want to get a coffee sure i guess if i was in chicago they might order a hot dog or a coffee right and if i was here in texas they might order a hot dog or a coffee and their voice their accent was another way they could have identified them so do you get the scene it's just a man 
And he doesn't have on his outer cloak, so I don't know if he's a Jew. And he can't speak because he's unconscious about to die. Do you see the scene that he set up? And everybody there gets it. The question is, is this man a neighbor? Okay? So, here we have verse 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now why would he do that? Why? Well, some might say, well, he was afraid. You know, it is a, a bad location, and if someone just got robbed, the robbers might still be about. But most likely, you've got this priest here, and he's coming down from Jerusalem. So what he would have done, been doing in Jerusalem, he probably lives in Jericho, he would have been up there carrying out his priestly service. And so he's coming back down, which is what they would do. They would serve out their uh, cycle of duties in the temple. Uh, and, and so within their culture, well, first of all, within the law, there was a restriction on touching dead bodies, right? And it wasn't a sin, but if you're going to serve in the temple and you touch a dead body, you would have to go through cleansing because for the Jew, the world is separated into pure and impure, all right? Dead bodies impure. This priest was just serving in the, in the, in the temple, so guess what? He's pure right now. And if he goes and touches that dead body, guess what? He won't be. He's going to have to go back and go through all the purification rites. And to be honest, it's probably just a big inconvenience for him. <laughs> doesn't really want to do that. He doesn't even know if it's a neighbor, right? I don't even know if I'm obligated to that guy or not. I don't want to go through all that again. And so he just passes by. Probably, I think, the, the, the oral law, which said he couldn't touch a Gentile either, or he would become impure. God didn't say that, but they did. They would say about four cubits. So if you've, you know, remodeled your bathroom lately, a cubit is the distance between your elbow and your wrist. All right? So he would pass by on the road, not get too close to him. So then we get to the next one. We get to the Levite, verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. Now, Oftentimes we think of just this one guy walking down, but I want you to think of the story again, all right? Desolate road, day and a half trip, up at Jerusalem serving in the temple. The Levites not miles behind. They're in an entourage, and they're coming. The priest has the place of honor. The place of honor is up front. The priest goes by, passes the man, okay? The Levite, it says, he came to the place. He came up to the guy. He wasn't under the same restrictions as the priest, he came up to the guy, saw him, and he passed on by too. Now, why would he pass by? I mean, he wasn't under the same restrictions, but I'll tell you this. Had he rendered aid, and this was a Jew, guess what he would have done? He would have dishonored the priest. I'd like to say, well, that's what it was. He was concerned about the priest. But, you know, I look within my own heart, and I look around the world, and I say, probably not. It was probably the same reason as the priest. This is an inconvenience. It's a dangerous area. What, am I going to stop and render aid while my entourage moves on? No, I'm not. I'm going to move on down the road too. He's half dead already. Probably couldn't help him anyways. So here we have the story, and, and you are listening to this story, and you know who's coming next, right? I mean, it's an entourage. You've got a priest. You've got a Levite. Not a Catholic priest. Jewish worshipers that were up at the temple, right? They're up at the temple worshiping. Faithful Jewish worshipers. That's who you as an audience are waiting to come next, right? So you're ready for the shock? Get ready to gasp, all right? Because Jesus says this, a Samaritan. I didn't hear it, but it should have been there. 
y'all should have went, <gasps> because, and really, that would have been a response. So here, here's Jesus who comes and deviates from our pattern, and now all of a sudden he's dropped a despised Samaritan right in the middle of this story. Very taboo. Very inappropriate, I assure you. And, and the Samaritans are an interesting people. Um, you know, the Jews hated them, and trying to understand why, they actually had the same beliefs and worship of the one true God. They avoided all images. They were loyal to the law that was given by Moses. Uh, they observed Sabbath, circumcision, all the festivals. And they had a sense that they were the chosen people of God and were somehow their fathers were attached to the land. And so you might think, why would Jews hate them so much? They're actually a whole lot like them. Well, they hated them because of where they worshipped. The Samaritans had set up a second place of worship on Mount Gerizim at Shechem. And you might wonder, why would they do that? Well, they, ironically enough, they did that because the Jews wouldn't allow them to worship on the mount in Jerusalem. And so they hated them for it. And so Jews hate Samaritans, and Jesus has dropped one in your story, and this is the element of shock I told you about. So be prepared. And it's the element we would have missed, not being in a first century mindset. We would have missed the shock. And so they're outraged, and what's he do? The Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And so notice, three men saw him. Two, the Levite and the Samaritan, both came to where he was, but notice the unique characteristic of the Samaritan. He was the one that demonstrated he had compassion. I need to define this term because our culture does not define compassion the way the scriptures do. Compassion is always attached to action. There's no place that you're going to find in scripture that compassion is not attached to someone taking action on behalf of the one they feel compassion for. Those two are inextricably linked and they're never separated. So we talk about compassion and it means I cried for you, my heart hurts for you, and I'll be thinking about you. The Bible would go, I don't know what that is, but it's not compassion. So don't call it that. Um, and so compassion is a deeply felt response to human need that's always demonstrated in some form of action. It's to love someone, essentially. And so what did he do? He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. Okay? So oil would have softened the wounds, the wine would have cleaned them, and he would have bandaged them up. It was a AAA first aid kit. Anybody on that route, road had one. The priest had one. The Levite had one. They all had one because that's what you travel with in case something happens. So it wasn't that no one had those things. They all did. Um, and it says he puts him on his own donkey. All the pictures show one donkey. It's not one donkey. This is a Samaritan traveling a long road, and they don't travel for fun in the first century. Okay, there's robbers, and there's all kinds of impending death awaiting them. They travel, he would be traveling for trade. And so actually he would probably have several donkeys. They'd be loaded up with the things that he was trading, and he'd be riding a donkey himself. And so what he did was he put him on the donkey he would have been riding. So I want you to get a modern-day context. Here he is at work, at his trade, carrying out his business, making money to support his family. And what does he do? He sidesteps that 
and renders aid to someone who has great need, who's about to die. Not for just a moment. He takes some time. You'll notice that he takes him to an inn. And don't think Motel 6, don't think Holiday Inn. And this has everything to do with the story. In Jewish culture, because they're obligated to love the Jew, if you came into a Jewish town and you were Jewish, well, then that city would put you up. They would bring you into a home and they would provide for you and they would welcome you there and show you hospitality because they were obligated to you because you're their neighbor, you're a Jew. And so they had this thing called an inn and the inn referred to despise people for those who were murderers or prostitutes, non-Jews and Samaritans. Those whom Jews were not obligated to love, those were the ones that stayed in the inn. And so he says to the innkeeper the next day, verse 35, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And that's, that was a good idea. We actually have stories from the second century of innkeepers murdering people who stayed too long. So that really was a big deal. He saw it through. He took care of him. He paid for his stay there. Do you see how much it took from his life? A substantial amount. Do you see why the priest and the Levite might have walked by? Who wants to have to deal with that? We're heading home. We've been up in the temple. We're tired. We're moving on. So if you're a first century Jewish hearer, Jesus has reeled you in a little bit. Yeah, he disrupted the dialogue, but he's told a good story. And yeah, he put a Samaritan right in the middle of it, but it seems to be going somewhere. And he says in verse 36, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? Now you might not remember because I know I talked a lot through this, but there was a difference between the lawyer's question and Jesus' question. Notice the lawyer's question. It focused on everybody else. Who is my neighbor? Are you ready? So the lawyer looks out upon the world and he determines, he decides who it is that he's obligated and therefore is going to show love to. He determines as he looks out. He determines who my neighbor is. Who am I obligated to love? as he looks out, okay? Notice Jesus' question. Which of these proved to be a neighbor? Which of... So the lawyer's talking about the guy on the side of the road, whether or not he's a neighbor. Jesus is talking about the other three. Which of them proved to be a neighbor? So as the Jew looks out and determines who he feels like he's obligated to love, which, by the way, is the one who's most like himself, Jesus is focusing on us looking within our hearts and determining who we consider ourselves to be a neighbor to. Who we, as we look within ourselves, who we determine we are obligated to love. Do you see the shift? It's no subtle shift. It's a dramatic shift. The irony is this. According to the lawyer's question, Was the Samaritan a neighbor? No. No, he's a Samaritan. But according to Jesus' question, was the Samaritan a neighbor? Yeah. 
Because he looked within himself and considered himself to be obligated to love any of those, particularly this man who had need. And so he proved to be the neighbor. So this lawyer, by the way, he's still in deep trouble in this conversation. And he's feeling it. So the expert in the law replies, the one who had mercy on him, that's the neighbor. The Samaritan is the neighbor. And Jesus, giving him no breath whatsoever, says, go and do likewise. End of conversation. And I'm sure he's thinking, all right, glad that one's over. In this particular story, it seems to me, it shows what it means to be a person who has eternal life. It describes a person who sees themselves responsible to be involved in meeting the needs of all those that they become aware of. That's the core of eternal life. Todd's been preaching on it out of 1 John for quite a while now. It's the very same message. And remember I said that these will have a summary of truths. I'm going to look at three of them real quick. If you have eternal life, your life will be characterized as one who loves God and compassionately meets the needs of those whom you are aware. That is at the core of what it means to be one who has eternal life. It's not something you can choose to do. I'm not up here saying, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and let's go do it. It's not something you can do after you become spiritually mature. I would even tell you that unless you do this, I don't know that you can talk about spiritual maturity. So the question is, what drives one who has eternal life? It's a love of God. It's a conviction that as a child of God, we must compassionately meet the needs of those whom we are aware. And why? Why, why would, would those with eternal life feel that? Well, I'll tell you why. And it has to do with this candle. And it has to do with this season. The reason why is Advent. The reason why, I'm fixing to put you in a different place in this story, because you're the one on the road. You're the one who is left half dead. You're the one who didn't have anything to identify them as anybody's and no one worth taking the risk, the effort, the inconvenience of going to help. And yet there's this God who sits on high over all heaven and earth who looked down on us in our pitiable state and he was moved in compassion. He didn't just shed a tear. He didn't just clap. He didn't just like to hear about the story and, and eat a meal and feel good about himself. You know what he did? He sent his very own son to a people who are sick and despised to care for them. And so the rationale is this. If you have been the one who is laying on the road with no hope, no hope of help, left for dead. And this one, the great Samaritan, the Jew, the king of the Jews, this one God, his son Jesus, came to you and cleaned you up and bandaged your wounds and made you well. How would you respond when you saw someone in a similar situation. 
Do you get it? You're the man. And so having been that one, there's an overwhelming sense of appreciation, overwhelming sense of obligation to care for others, which, by the way, this one who helped us, guess what he did then? He sent us. So with this advent of Christ came also an advent of his church and of the Spirit, which he has sent into all the world to expand his kingdom in the proclamation of the gospel for the sake of the Great Commission that all the world would know. Do you get it? Second truth. Your neighbor is not defined by any boundaries whatsoever. It's not defined by nation. Well, we got plenty of problems of our own. I hear that a lot. It's not defined by nationality. It's not defined by race. It's not defined by socioeconomic lines. It's not defined by anything. There are no boundaries in consideration of who your neighbor is, not one. I'm going to give a couple statistics here. Nearly half of the world's population, more than 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day. More than 1.3 billion live in extreme poverty. That's less than a dollar and a quarter a day. One billion children worldwide are living in poverty. According to UNICEF, 22,000 children die each day due to poverty. More than 1 billion people lack adequate access to clean drinking water. And an estimated 400 million of these are children. In 2011, 165 million children under the age of five were stunted due to chronic malnutrition. 870 million people worldwide do not have enough food to eat. Preventable diseases like diarrhea and pneumonia take the lives of 2 million children a year who are too poor to afford proper treatment. And I've recently had stories that hit close to home. An adopted son of a friend of mine from Uganda who had to tell his newly adopted son that his sister died two weeks before because they didn't have enough minutes to call him and let him know that she had malaria and needed a vaccination, which he would have gladly paid for. Hunger is the number one cause of death in the world, killing more than HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. Those are some of the staggering needs that exist in our world today. I've got one more thing, Taz, if you'd pull that up. One more thing. This is from the Joshua Project. It has to do with those who don't yet know our Savior. The red are the unreached and the least reached. If you're not familiar with that region, that constitutes about two-thirds of the world's population. The yellow, formative or nominal, very small Christian presence, and the green, established and significant. I want you to get a sense of the staggering needs that exist in our world today because I'll tell you, living in the context of much, we become very desensitized and blind to the great need that truly exists and what that means for us. 
we don't have to look at the man the man on the side of the road who's half dead. We live in a place where he's not all that obvious. Third thing, the only way you will take action against the staggering needs of the world is if you have compassion. Compassion is what separated the Samaritan from all the others. He had compassion. Somehow, some way, those who live around the world that we hear about, they have to become more than a statistic. They have to be more than big numbers that we can't comprehend. They have to become, in our hearts and our minds, living people, real people, people who really ache, people whose needs are deep, whose longings are true, people whose way of life have no hope, trapped in fear, cycles of oppression, and poverty. They've got to become real people. They have to be more than merely a target for our ministries. They have to be people on whom we have compassion. People for whom we are moved to action, to want to serve and love as we have been served and loved by our great Savior. Do you see it? If you have eternal life, you will love God and you will love those who have need. You will see no boundaries, no delimiting characteristics of being a neighbor and you will have compassion to step out and meet those needs. This is what Advent is all about. The one who came to meet our needs in our time of desperation. Pray with me. Father, Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your mercy that in our pitiable state you reached out to love us through your Son. Thank you for sending your Son and we celebrate his Advent this season and we look forward to his second Advent. Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts. Lord, that we would remember from whence we came that we were the sick and despised of the world for whom Christ has shown compassion. And Lord, that we would answer your call to go into a desperate world and serve their needs. Most of all, the need of the gospel, that they might hear and believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior of all the world. Lord, bless us this Advent season and let us eagerly anticipate and to celebrate the day of your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way and may the Lord cause us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people so that he may establish our hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Go and do likewise.